Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes, joined today by Chuck Todd, moderator of Meet the Press and political director at NBC News, my former colleague from years ago at the hotline and current colleague at NBC News. Uh, Chuck and I talk about primary day today, another Tuesday. What will we learn? What races are important? What should we be looking for? The general primary season, what have we seen so far? We talk a bit about the January 6th committee, uh, what we expect to learn there, what their challenge is in, in making their case, presenting their facts. And then we end with some really overindulgent talk about the Green Bay Packers. Hope you stick around. Chuck, welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. Uh, good to be here, my friend. Um, I want to start today with the primaries. There are some today. Today's a Tuesday, so it's a it's a primary day. There are primaries across the country. Um, there's not sort of the big splashy primary that we've seen in places like Ohio and Georgia, Pennsylvania, but there are some interesting House races and House primaries. Things that could give us sort of further understanding of what we're looking at both in this primary season and and also as we look forward to November. Is there anything that you're paying particular attention to today? You know, it look, I I in theory this is supposed to be the Super Tuesday of primary days, right? You have what seven states on in theory more people voting today than any other day of the year other than November. Um now that's mostly because of the presence of California and New Jersey, two fairly large states that are both voting today. But you're right, there isn't like this marquee um, about the only statewide that's of some interest. Um, and it's because I pay a lot more attention to Iowa politics than most people. But it's the the Dem statewide primary for the Senate uh, race against Grassley. A and that's, you know, if that's your headliner, you don't have a lead, right? So right, you know, we, right. we get it, you know. But if I'm looking at anything today, there is sort of a, and what we did in First Read, our newsletter, to try to give this a national feel, there's this incredible poll question in Pew that came out in the latest Pew survey. The, the survey itself is about a month old, but they just released the question. And it was, it was this, um, that two-thirds of both Democrats and Republicans believe that all or most candidates who run for office do so to benefit their own personal interests, not the community's interests. And overall, it was something like three, only one in four voters believe the average person who runs for office is doing it for the greater good. That is an alarming stat, right? That is a, when democ, you know, forget democracy dying in darkness. This is democracy dying in sort of self-interest. And if you look at today's elections, right, you have an attempt at creating more voter accountability, but it's all deflection of blame. So you have the recall in San Francisco. You've got some incumbent House members who are trying to, hey, my challenger is more of a career politician than I am. You know, trying to create, you have, look at Young Kim is doing. My, my favorite ad of the cycle that proves this point is a Young Kim ad. Uh, the attack is politician John Smith. I can't remember the primary foe is, so my apologies. But it, it demonizes the word politician. Like, you know, and, and so I'm curious to see if voters are responding to that. I think the, um, the pathetic turnout that we're going to see is only another reminder that I think if you don't 
think the candidates care about you, then why should you care about them? And why should you vote? So, you know, in that sense, that's how I'm what today feels like apathy Tuesday a little bit. Or, yeah. And the question is, is it apathy Tuesday? Is it anger Tuesday? Is this apathy and anger rolled up into one, you know? And yeah, maybe I'm pulling a muscle to try to nationalize it too much. I'm not going to deny that, but there's, there's definitely tea leaves that are being produced here that are worth reading. How's that? What do you have? Is, is there, uh, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but let me put you on the spot. What's the, are there historical analogs to, to that Pew question? I mean, we certainly saw a dip in, you know, more broadly in, in confidence in, in government and elected officials after Watergate. Um, in, in What's the funny, that's the, that's the baseline election we looked at to see, just to answer you that question there. The incumbent re-election rate that year was at an all-time low, and it was 85%. Wow. You know, the point is, is that here you have all this anger at people that run for office and all this anger at career politicians. And if you look at, I mean, I, uh, I, I watch probably anywhere from 20 to 30 TV ads every day right now because they're just coming in. You know, we, we have this subscription service that we get a copy of all these ads. And it, it's a good way of, number one, figuring out how to pronounce candidate names, right? Right, right. <laughs> to make sure, I don't know if you, you know, us, us old text guys who learn to, to cover politics and writing, I never get pronouncements right. You know, pronouncers, right? You sit there and like, well, I've called this guy so-and-so. So that's what he's <laughs> going to be because that's how I remembered how to write his name. Um, so, but you sort of, you start to get a sense of like, Clearly, everybody's looking at the same polling. And the easiest way to create distrust between a voter uh, and a candidate is to make the candidate seem like another typical politician who just enriches themselves and all this stuff. So, you know, and yet we're still going to have a 90 to 95 percent reelection rate. Right. Um, so it doesn't necessarily match that. But, hey, it's a big deal if we go from 95 percent to 93 percent. And I mean, look at what I just pointed out with Watergate that year. And and the thing is, is that it's probably the only historical analog we have is the period between the Kennedy assassin, basically Bay of Pigs through Watergate, right? Lie, 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 misdeception, Vietnam, all of that stuff. You could argue, like, if I were to talk about this era, I'd probably begin with the definition of is. Then I'd go to, like, mission accomplished. If you think about the erosion of that, right, you'd start probably in the late 90s and you'd go all the way through where we are today, right? You know. Rome wasn't built in a day and Rome wasn't destroyed in a day, right? And I think that's what this feels like. And this is why we all wonder the generation below us, they haven't seen America work right yet. You and I grew up in a period where, boy, we usually got our S together, you know, when we really had to. What do you mean by S? Shit. Sorry. I don't know. What's our, what's our, what's the rules here at the dispatch? We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow yeah, it. Is it allowed? God, I was watching something when I thought was a basic cable program and man, they go, it's I don't so think much, there are any rules. What are the rules? I haven't caught up. I haven't caught up. No, there's a lot. All I, I know is that there's certain things, if you and I say it, we'd probably lose our jobs. So I'm like really careful. Right, right, <laughs> right. No, I, I find myself when I watch TV with the kids reaching for the remote, like the mute button, like where, how is this? And sometimes in like animated shows on. Yeah, no. One of my favorite, and it's a, it's a reference that I'm going to keep as an Easter egg here because I don't want to explain the rest of the, of the episode because it'll really get me in trouble. But I, I like to watch a, It's Always Sunny. Uh, and there's a Danny DeVito, what, uh, uh, Danny DeVito's, uh, musical scene in one episode that is about sort of 
what are the rules? And he just starts saying, what are the rules? Just tell me what the rules are of just sort of interacting in, in, in a certain area. Uh, that's what I feel like sometimes. Just tell me, somebody tell me the rules. <laughs> tell me what I don't do. know what they are. Tell me what to do. So, so I want to go back, dive a little bit um, into a race in California that I think illustrates everything that we're talking about. Um, and it's the race to unseat David Valadeo, who's a Republican, pretty moderate Republican, voted in favor of impeachment. Um, and California has this unique primary system, top two uh, vote getters get to go to the general election, regardless of the party. And in, in an effort to help basically boost uh, challengers to Valadeo, the incumbent, Democrats House Majority PAC is running an ad, both digital and I think uh, television as well, that highlights this guy, Chris Matisse. And that is, to, to your point about pronunciation, it's spelled M-A-T-H-Y-S, but it's pronounced Matisse, which I learned by, so watch, I'd have been Mathis by watching the, whole, the ad. Right. You, you and yes. I would have been Chris Mathis until we Correct. saw the ad. Right. Correct. Sorry, Chris. So, so <laughs> what's happening here is you have Democrats telling us every single day that, that the House majority, Democrats, Democratic leadership telling us every single day that the Trumpified Republican Party presents a threat to democracy, an existential threat to democracy, and it's, it's more important than anything, that those people be thrown out of office and then literally turning around and funding the campaigns or boosting the campaigns of those Trumpified Republicans so that they can take out somebody who, in their view, if they actually believe anything, voted the right way on impeachment. Isn't this exactly why people are so cynical? Look, I wish this were the only example. Josh Shapiro, the candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, did this with Doug Mastriano, made sure Trump, you know. I asked, um, I'm going to give credit to Claire McCaskill on this topic. She was, is one of the few people, she was on, on my panel, and she voiced this conundrum. She said, look, I'd love to run against these Trump candidates. Eric, and she's, of course, obsessed with Missouri. Eric Reitens is probably, you know, a poster child of this, right? Former senator from Missouri. She's the former senator from Missouri, right? Greitens being the former governor. Um, and, a, and a race that Democrats only have a shot in if he's the nominee because of his past uh, accusations of sexual assault. Um, but she said, you know, they can win in this environment. So you need, you know, and she's somebody who did the same thing in her own race and it worked. It was good politics. Look, right. You know, with Todd this Aiken. is one of those things that is always good politics in the moment and it will bite you in the ass at some point, you know, probably in our era, the most famous example of this was Gray Davis, Gray Davis in Oh two, very unpopular governor did not want to run against the former fairly popular, moderate Republican mayor of LA, Dick Reardon. So, he ran campaign ads in the Republican primary back when California had separate primaries that boosted a former, um, the son of a former Nixon official guy named Bill Simon. Well, Davis succeeded and he got Simon and he successfully was able to win re-election with the worst job approval rating in the history, I think, of any sitting incumbent governor ever to win. And he was recalled six months later. Right. Like it was one of those voters were like, yeah, you're right. We'll take you over that guy. But don't think we're going to let you forget this. And it's happening in Illinois governor right now. The governor of Illinois, 
It doesn't now. This is a battle of political oligarchs in Illinois. You got one billionaire backing one candidate, the mayor of Aurora. You got another billionaire backing another guy. Then you've got an actual billionaire who's the sitting governor. He's the one spending this money. I think it is all adding up to why we have a finding that says three and four, essentially three and four people think most people run for office for themselves. And, and if you're picking your opponent, it means you care more about who you can beat. And again, it's your self-interest rather than the greater good. Cause you're right. You know, I'm sorry. Look, look at how many Democrats crossed over to make sure Brad Raffensperger didn't end up in a, in a runoff in Georgia. So the voters do care about not Trumpifying the country. You know, this is democratic elites who are, or, you know, look, they're playing a game here, but you're playing a risky game. It's so with dangerous. The democracy. It's yeah. so dangerous. I mean, it's honestly, very dangerous. It, uh, my, Hitler's my more of- beatable. Hitler's more beatable. You want to nominate Hitler? You want to get him one step closer? I mean, I, I know the minute you bring him up, you end an argument. And I'm not trying to Godwin's law this conversation. But what the hell are we doing here, man? Right. It's 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 like they they have been saying, I mean, look, I, I think and 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 I want to talk about the the January 6th committee and the hearings coming up this week as well. So this is an appropriate transition. They did this from the beginning on January 6th, too. The Democrats' impeachment language was crummy. It was not language that Republicans were likely to to sign on to. And I am not excusing Republicans for anything related to, to January 6th and any, I, I, can anything I that's happened you, since. My biggest pet, one of my big pet peeves these days in politics is somebody not being for something because they don't like the language. I mean, because I, I hear this excuse all the time. Well, the Democrats, stop it. It doesn't excuse you looking the other way in Trump's behavior. So I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that, but it doesn't mean that you can't criticize Democrats if they're acting, if they're telling us that the country's on fire, if they think that democracy's at stake, if they're deeply concerned about election integrity, and they're 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 worried about what they've seen from Republicans pretending that the election was stolen for for partisan advantage. If Democrats are truly concerned about that, and I am, I mean, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. But I am really concerned about it. If they're truly concerned about it, you ought to, and you think, you know, Trump and and the Trumpification of the Republican Party and this this sort of mainstreaming of political violence that that we've seen, I think, uh, flow out of January 6th, you can't play games. And that's what I think Nancy Pelosi did with the language of the impeachment resolution. That is certainly what she did with the formation of this of the committee, the early formation of the committee. They were back behind. Yeah, I, the look, scenes. I don't hold that against Pelosi. I hold that against McConnell. He made the decision not to allow a bipartisan. He today. did. And he and, did it and later. At the same time. Yeah, I'm sorry. And it, right. He created this. Situ- he helped create the conditions for the situation. We all know the House does not know how to behave rationally. I'm sorry. <laughs> give me a give me a House leader in either party and I'll show you a leader who's always going to be a partisan actor first. Right. Right. It's the nature nature of the the, yeah, it's the nature of fairness. It's the nature of the house. Sure. So I I take your point on on Pelosi. But let's remember, McConnell shut down the 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 one. But we would have had a, a, you know, and and the country would be better off for it. For sure. She I will say and and I I, I'm not doing this as a defense of McConnell. I've been pretty critical of McConnell. In fact, I think I got some grief for appearing on your show for being as critical of McConnell as I've been I, on this. Mitch McConnell on this hasn't done an interview with me and in, in basically since the arrival of Donald Trump. Um, you know, he, he fears any sort of rational 
straightforward news interview. He stays yeah. he stays in Fox Lane. I mean, well, you know what he's doing. I Pelosi get at the time that Pelosi. So so if you look at the founding, the the, the discussions, the debates over the establishment of this this what was to have been a bipartisan committee, there are behind the scenes conversations taking place between senior Democrats, senior Republicans who are in favor of the establishment of this kind of a committee. And in the middle of that, Nancy Pelosi sends out a letter to only Democrats in the House of Representatives saying, this is what the committee is going to look like. And the, the, the conversations ended. Now, Democrats can be forgiven for, for, for believing when you have 147 Republicans voting you know, against or, or objecting to the election. Hey, it's not worth getting in here. But after January 6th, I think it was worth at least taking the chance. I think Nancy Pelosi deserves some grief about that. Moving on to, 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 to the January 6th committee itself and what we're likely to hear in the coming days. Set aside the question of whether these hearings are going to move public opinion. I think most people are pretty skeptical that, that they will. Um, what do you expect to hear from the committee um, in terms of the story that, that the committee is going to tell, the, the facts that they're going to lay out? By the way, I saw somebody tweet, and I can't remember who it was, or I'd give them credit, but uh, somebody said, if, if, we're, if we lose focus on, on the, the mauling of first graders after a couple of weeks, um, the insurrection is probably going to get memory hold too. Uh, whether, whether that's good or, you know, whether, you know, I don't think the person was saying it to defend that aspect, just sort of pointing out an American reality. Um, and we saw it and we released some poll polling data yesterday that showed that, um, essentially Trump has successfully clawed his way to a draw, right. On essentially the public perception of what happened on January 6th, um, and what was it and what, uh, and who's responsible. Look, I, I, it's it's a pretty you know just based on the leaks, um, which I know they've attempted to be strategic with them, right? And we're not going to say whether how strategic the leaks have been. We'll be able to answer that question better after we see what they what they have tomorrow night or on Thursday night. Um, but I expect them to paint a pretty. I mean, they have a lot of they have a lot of stuff. They have a lot of text. I think they're going to be able to paint a pretty damning timeline that is going to bring this, you know, essentially who was the ringleader here, right? And it is going to, I think all of the lines, some of them are dotted and some of them are straight, are all going to get to Trump, right? Are all going to turn to him, are all going to put this on him in some form. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's one of those, you know, if you, if you imagine any TV show where you have police investigators trying to put, put together a puzzle, right. And they have the whiteboard, you know, think Claire Danes and, in, in um, Homeland, yeah. In Homeland, right. You know, the, the putting up everything and, and you'll have Trump in the center, right. Or think the Sopranos when they were trying to figure out the FBI's trying to figure out uh, who are the, who are the captains and who are the deputies and who are this, I, I, that's what I expect them to do. And I think if they don't paint that picture, then what have they been doing? You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it's pretty obvious to me. And, and I think the, the only unknown question I have in my mind about, Jan, about January 6th is how, how organized was it before the 6th versus on the, versus the actions of on the 6th, right? 
how much were they preparing for a moment that might have been like that, right? Versus the moment that they ended up getting. And I think that that's a that to me is is hopefully some 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 part of that aspect of the story gets answered via via depositions that they showcase on Thursday night. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's a great question. I I think I expect that one of the things that will come out of these hearings is an answer to that question in exactly that way, which is to say, this was not about a day. This was about an effort, a campaign, a months long effort, weeks, weeks and weeks in, in the making to stop the peaceful transfer of power. It fell apart on January 6th. That's I think correct. that's what we're going to find out. January 6th, the reason it ended up in a riot is that the whole scheme fell apart. Everything they'd been up trying to do to that point hadn't worked, so they did that. Yeah, exactly. But that, that was sort of the, it was, that was the calamity aspect of the whole plan falling apart, not the culmination of a plan, if that makes sense, right? Yep, yep, I think that's right. I mean, we, we saw, and we have, I mean, the, if you just stop, and I think it's it's hard to do this in sort of the the, the churn of day-to-day news and politics, but if you just stop and think about some of the things that we know happened in the weeks leading up to that, the, the Trump Raffensburger call. I mean, you have the president of the United States telling a, a, a secretary of state to find votes. It's I, look, cheating. I think that's the it's one. Cheating. Everybody keeps wondering where's Trump going to get held criminally account. I think he's going to get criminally indicted sure. in Fulton County. I think it, it, I mean, you got, that's a, that he's on tape enough, cheating. alone should be enough to get the indictment. He's on tape cheating. Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, you know, take this out of the Trump era. If that had happened 15 years ago, there'd be a trial there'd be a trial already of course and you you have so many other details i mean you know we talked um uh, about the the jonathan martin alex burns book that we had them on the podcast you and i have talked about it a bunch i think one of the things that that comes out of reading that book it was true of john carl's book and, and some others as well is the extent to which we've forgotten about these things that would have been huge in any other like the details you ha- you have these uh, Trump campaign workers, who uh, or Trump supporters, we'll call them, who went to pressure these ballot counters in Georgia to try to, in effect, convince them to make false claims that they had cheated. Just one after another after another. The Oval Office meeting with Sidney Powell and and these, it's crazy. And the extent to which we just have forgotten about so many of those details and they will be thrust back into the public consciousness as a result of these of these hearings, I think that will that will help at least tell the story. The problem or the challenge is that in our siloed media world, there's going to be a huge chunk of people, I would argue the people who need to hear this stuff most are not going to hear it they're not going to hear it at all. And to the extent that it's discussed, they'll get the kind of you know, bullshit that Tucker Carlson was selling with his Patriot Purge documentary. You know, it's interesting to go back to one of my daily habits, which is to watch the conversation that's taking place in television ads, essentially. Um, I don't know who's used more to attack a so-called rhino Republican, AOC or uh, Liz Cheney. The demonizing of Liz Cheney as a credible conservative to conservatives, you know, it's one of those things like, look, I mean, I've I've had my own character assassinated. You've had your character assassinated. She's had her character assassinated uh, quite a bit by that Fox machine. 
Um, and it is so I don't know if she's credible to conservatives, even though she's certainly credible, I think, to independents still. And she's certainly credible to Democrats and, and independents. But I, you know, the whole theory of her being on that committee is that, hey, Republicans will trust her. I think I think non-Trump Republicans do certainly believe that, you know, and she's but I don't know. I mean, the amount of demonizing of her that it's taken place on the political airwaves, that's done real damage to her nationally as a as a as a credible uh, 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 fact finder. So I would make the distinction on the right that you made earlier um, and necessarily, I think, on the left. I think that is she has been effectively demonized and marginalized among the political elites on the right. Right. Like Fox News hosts, Kevin McCarthy and his and his cohort, um, you know, the most active and partisan Republicans feel that way. I don't think that's and, and, and certainly that trickles down into sort of some rank and file Republican voters. Uh, her, her, her standing has been eroded, undoubtedly. But I think there's a there's a chunk of Republicans and, and as you say, certainly independents who look at this and these are again not the people who are paying attention to every twist and turn of of daily politics and say like wait a second you're saying liz cheney is somehow a squishy left winger you know on what issues has have her views changed it just doesn't make sense if you're not paying attention to every little thing or the fights that she's had with but but if you define politics if you're semi-new to the political wars and Trump brought in new people to the political wars, then conservative and liberal is defined by pro-Trump and and anti-Trump, right? There is a whole group of voters out there that the definition of conservative is for Trump and the definition of rhino is anti-Trump and the definition of liberal. If you're, you're a liberal, if you're not with Trump, yeah, that's it. Pure and simple. Um, and it's, (laughs) you're like, okay. I mean, it is perverse. I'm curious. What did you make of, of Congressman Jacobs and what happened to him in uh, the the New York Republican, Western New York. I mean, it is. This is the Republican, just to give context, yeah. who who came out after the shootings in Buffalo and said he was open to an just assault open. weapons ban. Open to open to it. And, and I say this because this is what I mean when when I think no wonder we're all so cynical about everybody that's involved in the political system, right? Whether it's the journalists that cover it, the people that are serving in it. Um, just debating an idea, which is the whole point of being there in Congress is a fireable offense. And everybody ran for the hills from him. Now that With I think it tells you the power. endorsements and, and yeah, it yeah. shows you the power of the gun issue in, in Republican primaries, right? Which you and I have both known this, anybody who spent time in a Republican, you know, the word second amendment means a hell of a lot more than just identifying a number in the constitution, right? You are making it, sending a cultural message. But that is another sort of chip away, if you will. You know, I don't know how else to put it. You know, that guy, he didn't commit any, look at his voting record. He's not a, this is not some rhino. He's react, he's acting like a human being. He's like wondering, I don't know, maybe we should think about these things. You know, but the idea that you can't even consider it or therefore you're a traitor. I mean, that is thought police stuff. Like we are, we are entering a new, a new era of, whoa, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, it, it's such an interesting and potentially cautionary tale. I think there's a, there's good reason to be skeptical 
that the kind of assault weapon ban that we've seen before, the kind of assault weapon ban that we would likely see come out of this would be very effective. But the whole point would be to have the debate, right? Let's have that We're not that even allowed discussion. to have the debate, right? right. You're like, wait, you wait, 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 why can't that. we have the debate? Totally. That's all we want. Right, right. I think, I think that's, that's what's so interesting. And look, I mean, this is the way, it, it's usually not on policy issues, but the way the Republican Party has acted over the past seven, eight years is that you are not allowed to, to, to be outside of what's acceptable. And usually that means supporting Donald Trump or um, you know, being aligned with the issues that Donald Trump thinks are important. You have to be where Trump is on those issues or you're out. This is interesting because it's, it's a policy issue. And, you know, effectively he, I mean, he said afterwards, he, he's decided he wasn't going to run. He said, I, I think I still could have won, but boy, this sends a message. I'm, I'm not sure he could have won. Uh, well, I'm sorry he didn't try. Yeah, because I, I, I do think you want to have I, I almost want to force voters to have this debate. Do you want, your, you know, the whole point of the people's house? Do you want them responsive to events on the ground? Um, you know, that it, it it's part of the political experiment. And I'm sorry, it's not taking place. Right. Right. You know, exactly. Exactly. Show me how, you know, make your best argument as to, you know, what bothers me, for instance, on this, it's like. All right. Well, is there a way to create some, you know, OK, you don't need. Uh, a license for this type of firearm, but maybe you do for this type of firearm. And maybe you do need a waiting period if you want to buy this type. You know, what was wrong with having uh, a nuanced conversation about this? You know, everything is like all in one. Well, let's all, everything's an assault weapon and raise the age. Well, no, I understand that not everything's an assault weapon. What's wrong with creating different categories of, of, of guns? Like we have a commercial driver's license, you know, I mean, you know, we have to do other things. And, and I know, there's nothing in the Constitution that enshrines the right to drive cars. Uh, I'm, I, I, I could feel the Twitter attack on the right already. But, you know, the fact that you can't even have a policy discussion. Look, you know, I miss the old days when you're like, hey, we should have a we should figure out how to fund child care. All right. Do you do it with tax credits or you do it with this or you do it with that? You know, you, you have a liberal and conservative conversation about it. Do you spend money on it? Do you raise money with taxes? Do you do it as tax credit? You know, whatever it is. But we're not even we're not allowed to have that. We don't have the conversation. I mean, this is it's this is what's I think changed now. Now we're going to sound like the I know the old guys on the Muppet Show, right? Like you know, yelling and wagging our. Back in my day, we barely got things done. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what are we arguing for? The good old days was only less dysfunctional, right? But but there was I mean there 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 were debates about about these issues and you know even even as recently as you know the as as 2010 as 2012 as 2014 you had the discussions had some policy focus in a way that they don't and I think the, the, what makes this interesting is this really is sort of a policy purge of 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 Chris Jacobs it's it's I don't think it necessarily signals a return to that because we have sort of campaigning and governance by assertion, by outrage now. I mean, it's all performative politics. We talk a lot about performative politics. Well, this politics. is, you know, we talked, remember the fear of, God, campaigns are now all, all the time, the 24-hour campaign, it's all the time. Unfortunately, we've, governance and campaigning are the same now, right? It used to be you had, oh, we had a year to govern and a year to campaign, right? Well, actually, it used to be six months of campaigning. Right, exactly. of governing, You know, but anyway, we kept chipping away. Now there's no distinction. You have to begin your reelection campaign on January 3rd when you're sworn in. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did we, so, so this is, I didn't expect to ask you this, but since I'm in the business of putting you on the spot, you and I first got to know each other working at a place called the hotline running national journal, obsessive campaign coverage, like constant nonstop. This is, this is all we did. We knew about the, the third place finisher in the North Dakota AG race. I mean this, and, and I loved it. Uh, did we contribute to, to this problem? So I have this, I, I have this, uh, when I've had, when I, when I've, when I, when I'm in my more pondering moments and I'll just leave, we'll decide what chemicals are help, helpful to that or not. Um, <laughs> I think about this a lot. Now I, I defend what we do in that we didn't try to, we weren't writing for the masses. We were writing for the professionals and we were, we were a trade publication. We were not pretending that this is what all political coverage should look like. Now, what I, what I always say is Mark Halperin and the note decided to take what we did and and infuse it in the national coverage and then arguably john harris and jim vandehei took politico and said hey we're going to take this because it's inherently more interesting right i mean look why did you and i have early success in our lives because people loved reading our shit, okay because they were like wow this is great it's like reading a horse racing form or it's like reading you know, what's going, you know, whatever it is, it's like a, it, it, yes, was. it was, it was like who's sports. up and down. It was, who's it was up, all who's down, that. but that was our job. People paid us a lot of money, every subscription with thousands of dollars. So this was a, you know, I always joked it was OPM. It was other people's money, right? Everybody paid us from some company account, whatever, but we were not, the average voter was not supposed to be reading our stuff. And it wasn't, we were hiding it from them. It was just like, look, we were writing insider. But I've thought about this a lot, brother, that there's no doubt that, that you know, when you look at now 538, and I say this with admiration, not, not I'm not, you know, attacking, but I mean, 538 should be behind a paywall, okay? You know, it's, it, it, and it, it, of course, you know, it's gonna, well, why shouldn't this be open to everybody? Well, it is for a price, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a substitute um, for political journalism. And and the thing is, is that, you know, look, I, I don't know how we could have built a, a better, a better beast here. And, you know, it's also one of those where I, I make myself feel better. Well, if it wasn't us, it'd have been somebody else. Um, but somehow we work for, a, uh, you know, somehow we invented a, invented something that other people have made a lot of money off of that you and I never did. And, and poor Doug <laughs> right. Bailey. I always said Doug Bailey, the late Doug Bailey. He had better ideas than most of Silicon Valley. He just didn't have the funders. <laughs> right. He didn't have anybody to back them. That's, yeah, I, th I think about it. I think about it a lot, too. I mean, to the extent that we talked about policy back then, it was as policy and governance informed campaigning. But yeah, like we knew a lot like about we ethanol. Announced that about, like we knew we a lot about ethanol, right? Exactly. Because of Iowa, right? Exactly. Like you know, we exactly. we knew a lot about heating oil uh, in New England because of New Hampshire, you know. But it was we were look, we were always about the policy as it impacted the campaign, right? Right, and and I think what's happened, and it certainly accelerated during the Trump era, is it's become so much easier for people who haven't been here for very long. A lot of young journalists who come to Washington. It's easy to understand the who's up and who's down. It's a lot harder to understand the history of nuclear deterrence and c Congress's role in funding, you know, nuclear improvement. It, it, that takes real knowledge and experience. So let me go to something where I think it's, you know, in the basic journalism questions of who, what, where, when, et cetera. I always say the most important question I read people for now is the why, you know, 
I read the dispatch, not for the who and the what. No offense, we all have the who and the what. Uh, it's the why, right? That's the differentiator of any publication. And the, the best publications, the best news uh, programs or publications or whatever you want to call them these days, newsletters, et cetera, are those that, that focus on the why with context and nuance and explain. And look, there is always been an intersection between policy and campaigns and politics and all of that, but explain it, explain the why a little bit more. Um, and I do think voters need to know that information. Hey, so-and-so is supportive of that because of this. Okay. I get it. You know, um, um, I think that that stuff does matter, but it, it, it is, I wish more journalists focused on the why they they really want to focus on the who or the what, because it, that's the first click, right? You know, and I, and I, and I get that. And, and the, and, and I, we don't need to, I know you, I know you got to run, uh, and I appreciate the time you've given us, but if you, if you look at the, the main function of journalists, if you and I were covering the 1976 presidential campaign, we were, we're out at a stump speech from, from Gerald Ford, our sole function is to tell people what happened, right? They, they, they have no opportunity to know that other than, now, maybe, and, and by the way, we might also, you know, I've always said with television, you, you're trying to bring. I would say, why, what makes, what distinguishes television from print? We're supposed to bring you to the event. Yeah, there's an immediate. So hopefully I'm bringing you and who are the people that came and hey, we'll tell, talk to some of the people that went, you know, that's, that's sort of the, that would be the distinction between the two. But, you know, David Broder back then might've gone out to talk to people that were at the speech and he would tell you here was some of the reaction, right? Sure, for sure. You can, you can get into the secondary questions, but I think the distinction is they were secondary questions. The main thing that journalists did for, for years, for decades was tell us what happened. Tell us what happened. And then you got into these other things. And now because you can watch a speech live on Twitter, um, you can see it streamed sort of anywhere on your phone. You, nobody needs to tell you the what anymore. And so people, journalists just skip that, that what happened and they, they get to the why. And I think it's, it's certainly distorted the way we take it. it, it, it you're right. The day-to-day -day journalist gets to the why. Like, I mean, you know, this is one of those where you should, you should earn your way to being the why reporter. Correct. Yes. That's, and, and, and you, you earn it because you and I and worked, then you know, you and you I have some two decades to get to become why reporters. Yes. You, you, I'll be honest. You, like, you have you're, some you're authority. Right. You have some authority. And that's, that's a big difference. It's one, one of the reasons that things aren't as good as they used to be there. That thus ends our grumpy section. What is the name of those Muppet guys? Cause that is exactly what we sound like. Uh, it's really God. bad. I can't remember. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, and then we're supposed to know their Waldorf. Is yes. One? Yes. Yeah. One of them yeah. was Waldorf, Waldorf which I bad. do think is supposed to be some sort of like Waldorf Astoria shot. You know what I mean? Is that like, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, rich people in balconies wearing tuxedos are named Waldorf. I did love those guys. They were, you know, they were well, great. That's who, I remember my old man, we, we had this deal. We watched uh, the Muppets came on. <laughs> the Muppets came on right before the Louis Rukeyser report. <laughs> <laughs> so the, we had one TV. So my dad, I think the Muppets were at 730 and on Fridays and I got to watch he would let me watch the Muppets, but I had to sit there and watch Louis Rukeyser with him <laughs> for a half an hour. Did you stay awake? I mean, that's I, pretty good. I, yeah, probably. I don't know, a little bit, but but not really. <laughs> not really. But the fact that I know who Louis Rukeyser is probably right. tells you everything you need and to know. I, and I do too. The household right? I was no, raised totally, in. Totally, <laughs> yeah. exactly. All right, exit, exit question. As, as most people know uh, who listen to this podcast, 
you are a longtime Green Bay Packers fan. Yeah, well, that is Packer, uh, Packer, Packer Mafia. What do we, I hate? I don't know. Mafia Packer Nation, Mafia. Pa- Packer. It. Packer. Are you an owner? Do you have the ownership? Yeah, four four shares. Uh, I'm an owner. Uh, so as co-owners of the Packers, multi-generational, right? Multi-generational. My kids are too. Um, oh, excellent. Very good. I can do that for for upcoming birthdays and holidays. Um, football season's a long way off. We're in. We're finally in mandatory uh, OTAs right now Packers the the wrap on the Packers is that they don't have any wide receivers they have the MVP quarterback returning they don't have any wide receivers but the defense looks beefed up they they lost last year heartbreaking fashion yet again didn't make it to the Super Bowl do the Packers make the Super Bowl in 2022 or I guess it'll be 2020 by the way did you watch the uh did you watch the golf thing I did with Aaron Rodgers and I did not I uh I stumbled on it it, it, it's so funny. It was Mahomes, Allen, Brady, and Rogers. And I guess what I would say is they all played part, played to type. Is that right? Meaning, it's not necessarily great for Rogers. Who do you think took I it the most say, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who do you think weirdly took it the most seriously? Rogers. Right. Like right. And by the way, he was the only one that looked like a looked more like a golfer. The other three actually looked like you and I out there in the course trying to hack away which was kind of it was fun to see patrick mahomes look like any other numbskull trying to hit a drive right right you right. know hitting it too hard he also threw down a a, a 16 ounce you know a few, really a few times yeah mahomes and allen were exactly what we all wish we were in our 20s like yeah, they were yeah. they were having a great time yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and do it but rogers took it all seriously and you and you just wonder because of brady's there you know and, and rogers hit the winning putt and you know and he has the brady chip you know a little bit yes i look I'm going to, the Pollyannish view in me is this. Um, if you look at the last two Super Bowl champion, I would argue they won not because of their offense, but because of their defense, Tampa and the Rams. And the one thing we've done that I think that is we've now matched their defense, right? I think we have, you know, I think our defense is younger than the Rams, right? Yeah. The Rams have an older defense. Yeah. Tampa Bay has, you know, and it's an easier path, right? So. And I never worry about, you know, did anybody think Donald Driver was going to be a great receiver? Did anybody think Antonio Freeman was going to be a great receiver? Did anybody think Jordy Nelson was going to be a great receiver? I mean, if the if the Packers have a track record at finding something out of nothing uh, at a, any position on the field, I'd argue it's wide receiver. So, you know, and if Aaron Rodgers is the most accurate passer, he makes, you know, as long as you don't drop balls, he'll make you a successful receiver. Look, we're going to find out how good Devontae is in 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 vegas right we you know but i would note what did greg jennings do in minnesota what did james lofton do sorry i, I want to keep going back to the raiders like i know all right maybe i'm maybe i'm doing well, a, jordy a nelson played for the raiders right he played for the raiders yeah um i think we've had a couple of guys end their career with the raiders for some reason james jones um, yeah right james jones yeah. did too yeah. yeah 89 yeah um so i'm less concerned about that you know, we've arguably been essentially a play or two away from the Super Bowl the last two years. So I, I, it's kind of frustrating. It's like watching, if you're into the NBA, it's sort of like, and you're a Miami Heat fan, and I'm kind of a Miami Heat just by default, because I, if I care, I'll care about the, my, my, my hometown team. And you're like, well, you know, geez, they were a play away here, play away there, and they might have won the title. How much do you shake up your team? Right? Like, and I think that's a, like I, I, I can't 
I want to criticize the Packers for not getting this done. And it will be terrible if they don't get another Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, right? It, it will be, can, he will be Dan Marino. And that's a bummer um, because he's better than that. No offense, Marino. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, don't you I, like everybody I, writing us off? I'm, like everybody, all the elite NFL people are like, oh, the Packers are done. It helps. It helps. I think that helps. I mean, Aaron Rodgers clearly does well when he has a chip on his shoulder. All we'll do is go 13 and three this again. Will, this will add it. And I think, look, don't sleep on Alan Lazard. This is the most self-indulgent oh, portion of God. the Dispatch podcast we've ever We've ever Just done. so you know, for you pot, for you dispatch fans here, the only person that thinks Alan Lazard's a Pro Bowl receiver on earth, other than any member <laughs> of the Lazard family, is Mr. Hayes. I have an Alan Lazard jersey that I bought at Lambeau, and they didn't have it on the racks. I had to take a blank <laughs> Special one order? and have them go make it for me. And the best part was Alan Lazard's friend from Iowa State was in front of me in line, and he looked at me like, you're buying an Alan Lazard jersey? And it was like his college roommate. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was pretty He's crazy. like the guy, you know, well, you know, go, you should buy a, his rookie base football card too. You know, if you're yeah, going to go in, yeah. go in, right. right? Buy all his stock. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for this. I, I do think this, the last five minutes has been easily the most self-indulgent recorded dispatch podcast. Isn't that why podcasts ever, were invented? I know. <laughs> I, you know, this is like what we all, what every person who does a podcast loves about podcasts and what everybody who listens to podcasts hates, hates about podcasts. About podcasts. <laughs> the self-indulgent we tried. We tried it, particularly <laughs> in this pod, when we do the interview podcast, we try to, we try to have a heavy explainer vibe to it um, and, and provide real content. And I think we accomplished that at the beginning. So we're, we're, we're uh, justified. You, you know, what's kind of fun our, now. You, you have that person who's probably dozed, may have dozed off a little bit. No offense. I get it. We all doze off, right? They're <laughs> listening to us. And then they wake back up and go, Am I listening to another podcast? Is this a different Why podcast? Why is this Packers talk? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for doing this. Eager to see what happens with the January 6th committee uh, this week. And uh, appreciate your time. All right, brother.